From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The three-day weekend won't likely bring much rest to the impeachment managers building a case against the president. They include a Colorado congressman. Coming up, what shape the Senate trial may take. Plus, what impeachment tells us about tribalism in the U.S. Also, Denver's representative in Congress, Diana DeGette, on her high-profile 2019 and her high hopes for 2020. And this week, the governor told us he's all ears when it comes to ways the state could pay for transportation. We'll ask a commissioner in booming El Paso County for his ideas. Republican Mark Waller grappled with the issue before as a state lawmaker. Later, the voice behind the Denver Art Museum's Monet blockbuster. I didn't say Paris. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The people you sent to Washington to represent you are wearing new and important hats. This week, U.S. senators became jurors, and a member of the U.S. House from Colorado became the equivalent of a prosecutor. Jason Crow was on the show yesterday. Our initial responsibility and task here is to ensure that the trial is fair, that witnesses and evidence and documents are admitted so that both uh, the senators and the American people can have a full picture of all the facts here. Crow, an Aurora Democrat, is one of seven impeachment managers, and we wanted to know more about that job as well as what shape the trial may take in the Senate. So New York Times congressional reporter Emily Cochran is with us from Washington. Hi, Emily. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. In a recent article, you wrote that the job of impeachment manager is, quote, fraught with legal complexity, political pressure and historical significance. I guess I'd like to start with the complexity. The managers were named to the job just this week with the trial starting next. What, what kind of preparation research must they do to formulate legal arguments for the U.S. Senate? There's going to be a quite a bit of work uh, behind the scenes to get ready for the, the formal start of the presentation of arguments, which we're expecting to see Tuesday. They've already met a couple times behind closed doors, but they're keeping it very closely held to the chest what exactly they're working on and how they're preparing things. But certainly, this is these seven impeachment managers are tasked with 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 making the prosecution, with making this argument. So it, it's it's quite a responsibility. I want to say that uh, it looks as though the trial will start at 11 Mountain Time on Tuesday. We'll carry special coverage. Uh, it's interesting in that recording we just heard from Congressman Crow, he says part of their task is to ensure that, quoting here, witnesses and evidence and documents are admitted. Of course, whether witnesses will testify and new documents will be considered remains very much in question. What's the latest on that? We've seen some Republican senators indicate that they would be open to hearing from witnesses, but they have also said that they're they're looking to hold off on any kind of final decision until after the initial arguments are are made before the before the upper chamber. So it's still unclear if we will see witnesses, and and if we do, who those witnesses are. And it will remain unclear into next week? Is that what I hear you saying? Pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, There is news this morning that uh, the defense uh, will include Kenneth Starr, who was the special prosecutor in the Clinton impeachment. What else do we know about the defense? 
the the defense team was just named this morning. It's, as you said, Kenneth Starr is one of them. Uh, a couple of the of the president's other allies, uh, Pam Bondi, who used to to work in Florida, as well as uh, Jay Sekulow, who has worked with the president's uh, legal team before, is starting to take shape this morning. Uh, with the case of Kenneth Starr, it's just another instance where we are seeing some of the figures that we saw during the Clinton impeachment inquiry and the impeachment trial still be a part of this this impeachment and this impeachment trial. I'd like to go back to Congressman Crow for a moment, who I understand is the only impeachment manager who was not on the congressional committees that heard testimony during the House hearings on impeachment. Do you think that puts him at a disadvantage? I don't think so, because he is surrounded by by people who have been involved in this. Certainly, we saw Congressman Crow um, emerge as one of the authorities on national security, and he was one of the freshmen who wrote an opinion piece uh, advocating for an impeachment inquiry. So certainly all of them, including Congressman Crow, have been deeply involved in these documents. Uh, As he has said, as many of them said, this was not a decision that they made lightly. And certainly a lot of research happened before we got to this point where we saw a vote to impeach the president. I'll note that Jason Crow's also an attorney. He served in Afghanistan. Care to say just a few more words about why you think he was chosen? I think part of his background, as you mentioned, uh, Speaker Pelosi put a lot of emphasis on picking representatives who had experience and, and a level of comfort in a courtroom. Certainly, as you said, Representative Crow has that experience. And also because he is uh, seen as a voice of authority on national security because of his of his service background. Uh, that's, that's something that's representative of a lot of these new members that we saw elected in 2018. And that's, a, that's a pers- an important perspective, I think, for the speaker, especially Especially when you look at the kind of allegations that make the make up the core of the of the inquiry itself, I'm I'm fascinated what this might mean for him politically. It's a very high profile role. He's in a district that has gone back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. I know that you've talked to some folks who had this same prosecuting role against President Clinton in '99. Do you have some sense from the history here that? This is like a net gain politically, or could this high-profile role be costly for Congressman Crow? Without a doubt, this cements his role in history, for sure. Politically, I think it is a little early to to make that to make that uh, judgment. I will say there was one impeachment manager in the 1999 trial. Um, He was in a more of a moderate district from California and Democrats specifically targeted him during his upcoming uh, re-election for his role as an impeachment manager. And he was ultimately defeated by Representative Adam Schiff, who, as we now know, is the lead impeachment manager against President Trump. When we say that the impeachment managers will prosecute this case, again, there are seven of them, what does that look like? I mean, do they divide the trial up into seven parts or someone takes a particular field of expertise? What have you been able to glean about that? So 
the the thing about the impeachment trial is that there there's not a lot of, of precedent for this. There's only been two other trials. So a lot of this is up to this group of impeachment managers to kind of decide for themselves how they want to proceed. If we look at the Clinton impeachment trial as as a precedent, which certainly we we expect them to do so, there was that division of labor. Uh, there were more managers at the time. There was a 13, a baker's dozen compared to the seven, but they divided up who, who would make the opening argument, who would make the closing argument, and who would kind of break down the articles of impeachment. So I think we're expecting to see a similar uh, division of labor, but anything could change. Uh, we asked one of the impeachment managers, uh, Representative Nadler, a couple days ago, what, you know, how how what kind of what that labor would look like and he said that it would be divided appropriately so uh they're whatever uh, that means they're keeping it close to the chest (laughs) do you think that that crow and the other prosecutors will be trying to convince the senators or the american people or both i think it's a little bit of both i will say the american people have been paying attention through these public hearings that we saw on the House side before before the, the holiday break, before the, the actual impeachment vote. So th- I think among voters, there is a sense of what the allegations are and what kind of evidence has emerged. Now, for the senators... They they were doing their own legislative work. They were they were pushing through nominees. They were doing their own work while the House was pursuing their investigation. Mm. So the, a lot of them weren't necessarily as engaged in the process, and some of them explicitly chose not to be because they held on to this idea that they are impartial jurors and they needed to wait to see what kind of a case the House would bring before them. So it, it is a little bit of both, but certainly the senators I think are going to be the more direct uh, target for the for the impeachment managers to make their case and to make it clearly. Uh, Emily, in just the last few seconds here, confirm something for me that I think we all trust and know. You do not expect the president to make an appearance in the Senate. As of now, no, but anything could happen in the next couple anything. weeks. I've, what a lovely title for this moment in history. Anything could happen. I think you've captured it perfectly there. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Emily Cochran is a congressional reporter for The New York Times. She joined us from Washington to talk about the role of impeachment managers, one of whom hails from Colorado. And we'll be right back with Denver's representative in Congress. As new evidence emerges, I'll ask Diana DeGette if the House's impeachment inquiry was thorough enough. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News will carry special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial beginning Tuesday. Access to this important, developing story is an essential part of our commitment to keep you informed. For those listeners who want to follow our regular daily programming during special coverage, CPR will offer our regular schedule on HD Radio at 90.1 FM Channel 2 in Denver and online at CPR.org. Denver's representative in Congress is here, Democrat Diana DeGette. We're going to get her priorities for 2020. We'll also take stock of a 2019 that brought some exceptional developments. The House will proceed to the immediate consideration of House Resolution 755. The clerk will report the resolution. That was DeGette in December presiding over the U.S. House. Resolution 755, by the way, laid out impeachment articles against the president. She was front and center again this week as the House voted to send the matter to the Senate. 
Representative Duguette joins us as part of our New Year's series with the delegation. Welcome back to the program. Great being with you, Ryan. Two major developments this week in the case against the president. So an indicted associate of Rudy Giuliani, Lev Parnas, said Trump knew full well of the effort to get dirt on his political rival in Ukraine. And second, a government watchdog Thursday found the Trump administration violated the law by withholding Ukraine aid. The Republican line this morning is that the House inquiry was lacking with all this surfacing after the fact. What do you say to that? Well, all the evidence that's come to light ever since the impeachment vote in December has only bolstered the strong case that we had already for impeachment. Could it have been a stronger case well, you sent to the Senate? Well, it could have been. A, well, it, it was a strong case. It could have had more evidence if President Trump would have allowed the witnesses from the administration and the documents to be produced. But what we're finding now is all of these documents that only bolster what happened have come out. I, I um, You know, in December, we had a caucus, and Adam Schiff was talking about all of the evidence, and he said, the most powerful piece of evidence was the first step piece that came out, which was the transcript of the phone conversation where President Trump said, I need you to do me a favor now. And all everything else that's come out since then has only strengthened that case. So for people to try to say, well, there's more evidence coming, it should have come in the House, it's just bolstering an already strong case. And frankly, I haven't heard any Republican try to argue that this didn't happen. I want to quote from the findings of the Government Accountability Office, again, which found the withholding of Ukraine aid to be illegal. Uh, It's a short quote. The Constitution grants the president no unilateral authority to withhold funds. If the president is acquitted in the Senate, do you have deeper concerns about the separation of powers, Congress's power of the purse being weakened? Well, this impeachment proceeding, there were two articles of impeachment. The first one was that he exceeded his bounds by by making the um, uh, aid and also the meeting in the White House contingent upon an investigation of Joe Biden to help him in the 2020 election. And the second one, of course, was the obstruction of Congress, the refusal to give documents and witnesses. I'm concerned every day, even aside from the impeachment, that President Trump thumbs his nose at Congress. Uh, despite the, the Congress's restriction of funds for building of a border wall, yet you saw, saw this week the president now has said he's going to use even more money in Department of Defense funding to build the border wall. Uh, he continually uh, tries to um, diminish Congress. And he he really thinks, he said, he thinks he's allowed to do anything under Article 2. That's not a president. That's a dictator. And that's what we're continuing to fight against every day. You're calling President Trump a dictator? I I don't think he would mind being a dictator. I want to go back to December when you led impeachment debate in the House. I understand you were told of the possibility a couple of weeks beforehand. Um, The New York Times said that you were picked because Speaker Pelosi was impressed with your, quote, tough, skillful parliamentary hand. Um, You had to be prepared for anything that the uh, Republicans might have done in their defense of the president. What what were some of the possibilities you looked at as you prepared for that moment? Well, you never know uh, in, in a really fraught situation like that. Obviously, the stakes are very high. 
You don't know uh, what motions people might try to bring. You don't know if members might try to have demonstrations on the floor, or you never know what's going to happen in the gallery if people will try to start demonstrating in the gallery. And so my job when I'm presiding is to keep a firm hand, to be fair and equitable to both sides. So if someone hit, for example, if someone's speaking and their time is up to make them stop speaking, and also to not let the debate on the floor get out of control or the gallery. And, and um, it's fascinating. I hadn't thought about the gallery. Right. You have your eyes not just on the members, but that's on... right. You're in control of the whole chamber. And, and I've and I've I've really made a specialty of doing that. I, I enjoy um, uh, presiding because it helps it helps the debate go forward in a very responsible and even-handed way. The Trump administration posited that you were in the chair because Speaker Pelosi knew that polling numbers had cast her in a negative light. Uh, This is White House spokeswoman Stephanie Grisham. I think that she's seeing that her face being associated with this is a very bad idea. So she's put forth this poor congresswoman from Colorado who should be very worried now about her face being associated with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not very worried about my face being associated with it. Tell, I, me, tell me more about so, that thinking. So, so um, traditionally, it's Stephanie Grisham obviously has no idea how the floor works because uh, traditionally in debate, the speaker does not preside over the debate. whether Democrats are in control or Republicans. And as a matter of fact, during the Clinton impeachment, Ray LaHood, a congressman from Illinois, presided over that proceeding. I was really honored because the day after the proceeding with Trump, Ray LaHood called me up to congratulate me. And and I said, you know, there's only two living people who've presided over an impeachment proceeding, you and me. And here we are talking on the phone. Speaking of congratulations, you know, Republicans are really making hay of the fact that Speaker Pelosi handed out those pens after the signing of the article, sending them to the Senate. Was that in poor taste, do you think? So um, it, it's actually kind of an arcane Washington tradition. Every time the president signs a bill uh, that's an important bill, he uses a number of pens, and then they're distributed to the bill sponsors and others. And, and Was this a time to skip that and, arcane? And I think, well, I think that... that uh, it was an important bill enrollment, and I think the speaker wanted to have the. Uh, I, I think she wanted to have the ma- impeachment managers and the committee chairs have some kind of a memento of what they had done. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're continuing our series of conversations with members of Colorado's congressional delegation. This time, Democrat Diana Deget of Denver. Let's get to some policy, Congresswoman. On Wednesday, the Senate passed a new North American trade deal, the USMCA. Uh, This actually received bipartisan support. What are you envisioning as its impact on Colorado? Well, I think this was a really important updating of the the Canada-Mexico trade deal that we had had before. And I think this will really help open up our markets even more. One, One of the reasons I supported this trade deal is because it had much stronger environmental and labor protections. And it also had very good protections for bio uh, biomedical, uh, uh, biosimilars, and so on. So I, I think it's going to really help our economy, agriculture, but also uh, other things. Is this something where you and the Trump administration see eye to eye? Well, this... well, we were able to, um, in, in the end, it was a negotiation. The House Democrats were able to put much stronger provisions, and it's a good example of when Washington works. 
Uh, one of the major initiatives that you've taken up during your time in Congress has been the 21st Century Cures Act. Uh, working with the FDA and the National Institutes of Health, it's designed to accelerate breakthrough treatments. You mentioned uh, medical treatments in the context of of the new NAFTA, but um, it occurs to me that the 21st Century Cures Act only passed in 2016, but you're already working on a kind of reboot, like a 2.0. Yeah, we're, Why we're is working, that We're working on Cures 2.0. Uh, the 21st Century cure, Cures was the biggest restructuring of biomedical research and then drug and device approval at the FDA that we've ever done. Was that approval and, too slow? Was it outdated? Well, uh, some of the research ways that we had at the NIH and then some of the the uh, approval ways were just outdated with 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 um, uh, different kind with, with the mapping of the genome with precision medicine and individual medicine and and with uh, electronic research and by and medical records. There's a lot of more efficient ways to do it. And so that was what that bill was. And you already so, need a reboot. So well, it's not a reboot. It's a Enhancement. And what will it so, mean for patients? Yeah, what it'll, I think what it'll mean is that they'll be, it, uh, Cures 2.0, which is bipartisan. I'm doing it with Fred Upton, Republican from Michigan. What it's going to do is put much more of a focus on patient centered medicine so that p- we're hoping patients will be able to get their medical records more easily, but also that their genetic makeup will be able to be used in developing cures that will be central to them. This is it's exciting. called personalized medicine. Yeah, yeah. So there are, there are barriers to that right now, to a treatment being sort of customized for my what, yeah, some, DNA? Some of, the research, some of the research requirements and some of the ways that, that, that people do research. And also, some of the ways that our uh, computer systems it, are interoperable. They don't work. So, so this is going to break down some of those barriers. Earlier this week, an investigatory panel you sit on heard from states on how they're using federal money to battle the opioid crisis. Right. We're talking billions of federal dollars here. What was the most surprising thing you heard or something that an individual state has done on opioids that you'd like to see implemented in Colorado or the country? Well, so that's the Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee. I'm the chair of that subcommittee, so I I ordered that hearing. And we brought in some of the states to see what they had done with resources. Actually, those resources came forth in the 21st Century Cures Bill that I had passed. And we were very encouraged to see that states have been able to use those. But now what the issue is, as is so typical, a lot of the addicts have moved away from opioid use to methamphetamines mm. and other types of drugs. Cocaine, in and, fact, and found cocaine to be a big has been issue. a problem. And so one of the things they asked us to do, which we might do in Cures 2.0, they asked us to give them more flexibility with what they can do with the federal dollars for opioid treatment and prevention to allow them to use it for other types of drug abuse. This is not a great simile, but it's a bit like whack-a-mole. In other words, if you're aiming to get opioids, uh, that only works for so long because other drugs enter the picture. And, and that's part of what some of the some of the witnesses were saying. 
we need to not just focus on the substance that people are abusing, but we need to go much deeper into the mental health and into the lifestyle to prevent people from drug addiction in general. The idea that if you do that, it's nimble enough to respond to whatever the drug is at the right. moment. Right. It's not drug-based. It's lifestyle and, and addiction-based. Well, Congressman, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's great being with you. Glad to be in studio. U.S. Representative Diana DeGette, she represents Colorado's first district, and we've been checking in with the delegation here at the start of a new year. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with what impeachment tells us about tribalism in this country. Can tribalism be eased, reversed? I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Hey there, it's Vic Vela, the host of Weekend Edition here on CPR News. And whatever you're going to do this weekend, ski, go to a concert, or lounge on the couch with your dog like I do on my days off, know that it's easy to keep up with what's happening in the world around you. If you have a smart speaker, all you need to do is ask it to play CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is at your command anytime, hands-free, with your smart speaker. We want to talk about impeachment now in the context of tribalism. How can some Americans see this moment as critical to the future of the country, while others dismiss it as a sham? Stephen Hawkins is back. He's the head of research for More in Common. That's a nonprofit that works to counter political polarization. Hawkins is based in Denver. And Stephen, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. First off, what do polls show broadly when it comes to impeachment and public opinion? Well, what the polls show is that impeachment is not a major event that has disrupted public perception of Trump. Instead, what they're showing is that this is just more of the same from the last several years. So we're finding that only a small minority of people are paying very close attention to each of the new characters that emerges in the impeachment scene. Most people are kind of keeping it in the background. They're vaguely aware aware of what's going on. They'll recognize some names. But most importantly, what we're seeing is that if you started off as an American watching this, not liking and not supporting President Trump, you dislike him more now. But if you supported him going into impeachment, your support remains strong or has gotten even stronger. What we're not seeing is a slow erosion of support as daily coverage continues to keep impeachment in the news. This is reflected in a poll out this week from PBS NewsHour, just quoting here, public opinion has been locked in place for months. An equal share of Americans, 47 percent, either support removing Trump from office or opposing, uh, pardon me, or oppose ousting him. Is this the very definition of tribalism? Is this the very definition of polarization? Well, there are a couple layers to the problem here. The first one is what we might call epistemic authority, which is the formal and academic and fancy term for saying we don't trust the same news sources. We don't believe the same people. And so while there is a very strong conviction of Trump's guilt on one side, on the other side, there's very much a sense that this is all partisan. It's motivated by um, partisan frustration from Democrats that Trump has been elected and is just the next episode in the long saga of trying to reverse the outcome of the 2016 election. So that's one layer. I think another layer of this is very much connected to people's identity. So 
It could have been the case, or it might be the case in some places, that your political identity is just an obscure thing, which is just about some policy preferences. But it's not very connected to who you are. Mm. But that's not what, a, what we see in the United States. Today in the United States, on one end of the political spectrum, if you're a Republican, for instance, your political identity is deeply connected to your national identity, feeling very proud of being American, and likely very connected to your religious identity. And so the political sphere has become also the sphere of your pride in who you are and your sense of moral conviction connected to your religious identity. And equally on the far left, people's progressive identity, I'm speaking specifically about the narrow progressive wing on the democratic side, has also become a very critical part of who they are, what they want to see change in the world, and that's connected to their political views as well. And so it's not just that we don't trust the same information, it's that our identities, that our, our political identities are infused with our moral identities and our personal identities, and that makes the conflict so much more important to us. Did, did I hear you say that's a purely American phenomenon? It's not purely American, but it is especially American. Um, our organization, More in Common, works across Germany, France, the UK, the US, and the United States is unique among those four countries and uncommon around the world for the diversity that we see across all of those domains, religiosity, cultural viewpoints, um, political divergence of political spectrum. Those things are all quite distinct in the case of the United States. So... Is this a daunting time to be trying to fight polarization in the United States? Absolutely. Okay. What are potential solutions to this? I guess I want to establish one thing. I don't want to assume it's a problem. In other words, a lot of what you've described, that people hold their politics close to their hearts, that sounds really important. Um, that sounds invested. Uh, but I think to the extent that it stops debate or that it means we don't deal with facts and policy, but we deal with identities, that that's where this becomes dangerous. Is, right. Do I have that right? I think so. One of the things we find when we speak to Americans, and we've just finished a project where we spent six weeks talking to about 100 Americans from the country on a daily basis, is that there is an almost uniform agreement that our political conversation has gotten completely dysfunctional. And so that's one easy place for us to start. I don't say easy in that um, we'll resolve the problem quickly, but that's something which every American can participate in, is let's have a calmer conversation where the judgment doesn't happen as immediately because there's a sense that we can't resolve any of the problems that we're facing if we're not able to speak about them. But so none of that is reflected, it seems to me, at the top right now. Well, part of that is because of what the media and social media have as incentives to provide to us. I was just speaking with your previous guest, Congresswoman DeGette, who was explaining that some of her most significant achievements that were bipartisan don't get media coverage. And that's representative of the broader problem we have, which is that those things which elicit outrage are those things which are most shareable and therefore most deserving of prioritization in social media's algorithms or getting picked to be the top story of the night for cable news. So that's a pretty big structural change that yeah. would have to occur. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's one element of the problem. I think one thing which can be instructive is looking back to other periods in American history to see when were, were, when were we less polarized and divided. Yeah, that's a good question. I, one, of, one of the things I wanted to know from you is, are we more polarized palpably than measurably than other times in our history? So we are, and just two data points to substantiate that. Yeah. One is if you just look at the overlap between members of Congress, between their ideologies and their parties, they've now completely become overlapping where all of the progressives are Democrats or all the liberals are Democrats and all of the conservatives are Republicans. That wasn't the case in the 80s and the 90s where you would have conservative Democrats and you have liberal Republicans and that provided a nice overlap where you have the same worldview but different political parties. It makes for an easier process for developing legislation. So that's one data point. The second data point being that the rate at which people are saying, I wouldn't want my child to marry a Democrat or I wouldn't want my child to marry a Republican has increased tenfold from 1960s. Myers. We're now seeing that those numbers among Democrats, for instance, are in the 40s, 40%. So you, you started to say we, we look back at a time when there was not so much polarization. Is, so is there an attribute from that time that we can look to apply today? Well, it's very difficult because one of the things which held a sense of shared national identity and shared national purpose in the 20th century was a common foe. The USSR, the Soviet Union, was atheistic, communist. It was a dictatorship, and it posed a nuclear threat to the United States. That strong outgroup, that strong enemy meant that even though in the United States we were confronting civil war debates, debates about same-sex uh, marriage and relationships— we were able to preserve a sense of American identity that mattered. And when the conflict Vladimir between Putin parties, just doesn't cut it, Putin he doesn't, doesn't cut, cut it. it. He doesn't cut it. And what that means is we were able to appeal to a sense of, well, at the end of the day, we're all Americans and that matters. And that's a useful resource when you're having a lot of political conflict. Well, that today isn't really on the table. Today, a lot of Americans say, Rightly or wrongly, they say that the greatest threat post the United States is the president of the United States. And so there's nothing that we can rally around to try and solve big problems. Well, you said earlier you were daunted. What's, what is a step that more in common is taking in the countries in which it's working to change this? Well, we're working with a lot of partners who have a lot of reach and a lot of relevance that is uh, far beyond what we can do directly. So for instance, we've partnered with the Catholic Church in France, and France is primarily a Catholic church, and they have institutional Catholic relevance. Country. Sorry, Catholic, Catholic country, country, yes. Um, they have relevance and institutional um, reach across the country. So we were able to work with them in developing the communications that they should be using from the pulpit to speak to the French public, which is similarly divided on key questions around immigration, around Islam, around inequality, and provide them with an understanding of the psychology of the different groups in France and why people are concerned in, from different perspectives. Now, what's fascinating there is that's not a solution you're applying to the state, to the government. It's something you're applying to one of the key institutions in society. Is that where you think hope lies? It may need to be that we work primarily outside of the political spectrum, outside of the political space, because really the, what's happening is there's a lot of changes happening in our countries. In the United States, we have major demographic change, technological change, and cultural change, the real collapse of the relevance of religion, the emergence of a secular culture. 
And these things are manifesting in the political space. But if we can work outside of them in cultural institutions to improve the quality of our national discourse and to find some common ground, that's likely going to have reverberating effects which we can try and bring into the political space. Stephen, thanks so much. It's fun to pick your brain. Thank you so much for having me on. Stephen Hawkins of Denver is director of research for the nonprofit More in Common, whose mission is to, quote, understand the forces driving us apart. I'm going to utter a phrase that could have been read 10 years ago and would probably apply 10 years from now. Here it goes. State lawmakers this session are tackling transportation, education, and health care. Those are the perennial issues at the state capitol, and they came up in my conversation this week with the governor. Now a different view from a Republican who has a little distance from the dome now. Mark Waller is a commissioner in El Paso County, which includes the booming communities in and around Colorado Springs, of course. He served in the state house from 2009 to 2015. And Mark, nice to see you again. Yeah, good to be here. At the start of the session last week, Democratic House Majority Leader Casey Becker says uh, she hopes civility between Dems and the GOP will reign over the next four months. Her party controls state government, I'll say. When you hear that, the idea of civility in the Colorado legislature, what is your immediate reaction? You know, Ryan, I I hope civility reigns as well. Um, I'll tell you, people often ask me, uh, do you miss your time in the legislature? Do you miss being there? And I tell them, I I miss my time there, but I don't think I would want to be there now. Uh, And that is because I think civility uh, is a thing of the past. I I think that they are not very civil to each other. And uh, it makes it really tough to uh, do good things for the people of the state of Colorado when you can't even be nice to each other under the dome. What do you think changed? Uh, I think a lot of things have changed. I I think, number one... um, Uh, gerrymandering has had a significant negative impact on who we get at the state capitol. You get the extreme right and the extreme left. And I I also think the proliferation of social media has had a very significant impact on how we deal with each other under the dome. This is uh, actually quite reflective of the conversation that preceded you on the show, the idea a bit of the outrage economy. Do you think that's true? Yeah, absolutely. I think think it's... uh, you have political leaders engaging in this, you know, sort of vitriolic um, approach to using social media, um, and and folks, I think, think that's what's caused us to be where we are. But I think that that's just a reflection of where society has gone as a whole. So, for example, I, I don't think the the president of the United States has caused us to be where we are. I think he just capitalizes on where society was already going from a social media perspective. Do you think he's fueling this? Do you think he's adding fuel to the fire? Yeah, again, I, I think it's just more a circumstance of him reflecting on and adapting to what is already happening. I, I think that we were already going that direction. It is so easy for a person to sit in their basement and make baseless attacks on somebody um, than it is to face them, you know, to deal with them in person, face to face. Do you want the president to be a better example? Yeah, I'm, I mean, for sure. I, I wish the president would tweet, would uh, tweet less, obviously. But again, I think it's certainly just a reflection of where we've gotten. Okay, let's tackle some of the issues at play in the state and at the legislature. Uh, we'll start with one that probably hasn't changed much since you were there, transportation funding. I want to play a clip from my interview earlier this week with Governor Jared Polis. Here's the issue. Three different initiatives that would have funded our roads in two years 
failed at the ballot box. And yet voters are still complaining to their Democratic and Republican legislators, there's too much traffic, do something about it. So we want the legislature to step up, the Republicans and Democrats to step up and have a real solution that will reduce congestion and traffic and deliver for Coloradans. It's a sort of call to action. I just want to note that El Paso County has its fair share of growth and traffic. Um, I'll note that one idea being floated is to encourage local governments to band together and solve these issues as regions. Um, Two-part question. Do you have a real solution, uh, as Paula says, and what do you make of that regional approach? Well, I I think the regional approach is an important uh, way to tackle the transportation issues that are facing Colorado. And I I think it doesn't just take... um, uh, for example, it doesn't take just the federal government to work on I-25 or the state government. It takes all governments together, which is something that El Paso County has done and done well. Uh, we have the GAP project that's uh, between Castle Rock and Colorado Springs. That and Greenland drive. Th- that's right. $350 million project that has federal, state, and local money in it, making it happen. And so I, I think that's something that actually we in Colorado Springs and El Paso County have done particularly well. Better than other parts of the state? Like, do you, do you see that being replicated? And doesn't that require local money? I mean, easy for you to say if you're in a booming place, right? Sure. Um, I, I, I can't speak to whether it's better in than other areas of the state. I don't know necessarily what other areas are doing. I just know that we are doing that I think particularly well. You know, most of that highway isn't even in El Paso County yet. El Paso County uh, government's putting about fifteen million dollars into that twenty-five million dollars total local money into that project. Last month, you were quoted in the Colorado Springs Gazette responding to something Governor Polis said about transportation. Polis at a press conference had said Coloradans want great roads, no traffic, and not to have to pay for it. You thought that demonstrated how out of touch this governor is with the people of Colorado. What irked you so much about that? Yeah, that was incredibly frustrating to me. Um, The governor had just uh, spoken to the Colorado County's uh, Incorporated Conference that was happening down in uh, Colorado Springs, and he he got through talking about all of the initiatives that are moving forward, free uh, full-day kindergarten, uh, free preschool kind of activities that are coming. And and I think that's, number one, not accurate at all. I think the way that we should be talking about this this is, hey, if, if we want to engage in a full day kindergarten for folks, then what we need to do is say, that's going to cost you X number of lane miles of road that are not going to be paved the following year because nothing is actually free. And my frustration came from this. Um, the budget in the state of Colorado has grown significantly over the last several years. We're in a booming economy right now, yet transportation spending has remained flat. I think where the governor is out of touch with the people of the state of Colorado, it's not that they don't want to pay for transportation. It's that they want state government to prioritize transportation. Uh, Again, our budget has grown significantly, yet transportation spending has remained flat. It sounds like he's gotten the message that government is being asked to work within its means. He keeps reflecting on the failure of the statewide measures in this regard. Do you trust that he has gotten the message? <laughs> Boy, um, no, I don't. And, and I apologize for being so frank there, but um, I, I just haven't seen anything out of this governor 
to this point that has said that he has actually gotten the message. So, for example, um, I, I'm excited to see what, well, I'm interested, I should say, to see <laughs> what kind of uh, initiatives are going to come out of the legislature this year. But I guarantee you it's going to be about figuring out how to generate re- new revenue uh, as opposed to using existing revenue to solve the transportation problem. Uh, let's talk about health care briefly before we go. Governor Polis's answer to a lack of competition in the insurance market in 22 counties is a public option. Uh, the high cost of health care isn't a new issue. I'm sure that you wrestled with it at the Capitol when you were there. Mark Waller, now El Paso County Commissioner. Uh, what would you do to address the lack of competition? Yeah, I think we have to open up uh, the free market to being able to sell uh, health care uh, packages across state lines and things of that nature. I, I think anytime we can inject free market ideas and principles into um, in, into an area, we have better opportunities to lower the cost of, uh, you know, of, of, of whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. Some would say you open up the free market, that's how you get really junky healthcare plans. Uh, well, do we know that? Has, has, has that happened elsewhere? I, I think I would argue that as the state has taken more and more and more control over healthcare, plans have gotten a whole lot worse. Um, it certainly happened uh, in the case of El Paso County, the costs are going up and the amount of coverage is going down, which is why we've gotten to the point where uh, the governor's trying to push this initiative that he's pushing. Thanks for being with us, Mark. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. I appreciate being here as well. Mark Waller, El Paso County Commissioner and former Republican state lawmaker. We should also say that he's now a candidate for district attorney in El Paso and Teller counties. The Monet Show at the Denver Art Museum has proven to be a blockbuster. And if you've been, maybe you opted for the audio tour. Monet's attachment to the sea, which he called, quote, sinister as hell but quite superb, was so profound, he said that when he died, he wanted to be buried in a buoy. That is the voice of CPR classical host Monica Vischer, a colleague of mine. And Monica and I were at lunch the other day. I asked her what it was like to record the audio tour. And I thought her stories about it were really interesting. So I asked her to share them with you. Hi, Monica. Hi. Did you record the session here at CPR? No, no. This was a a studio down in Rhino. Um, Music stand, microphone, audio engineer on the other side of the glass. And someone showing you art. Yeah, actually, it was a lot of fun. They had a couple people there from the Denver Art Museum. One of them had a folder filled with color photocopies of the Monet paintings. And as I was talking about them, she'd hold them up to the glass to inspire me while I was doing the read. So that when you talked about a water lily, for instance, you could... See it not just with your mind's eye, but your literal eyes. Yeah, I had the image of the water lily right there. Did you do a lot of takes and retakes? A a little bit of that. Um, Sometimes it was stopping down and tweaking the wording, making sure the words fit in my mouth. Of course, I don't speak French like you do. (laughs) Oh, the pronunciations. (laughs) Well, the pronunciations were, um, they were fine because... Words like what? Giverny. Giverny, right, where he had his home. Right, right, right. I didn't say Paris. Uh, I would say Paris. Paris. Most people in this country do say Paris. Yeah, Paris would come across as a little... (laughs) Pretentious. ...affected. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But I did think of you while I was recording because I know you do speak French fluently. Well, I'm I'm flattered that you would 
think of me. How long did this take, the recording session? It was booked for three hours, and we used three hours straight without a potty break, <laughs> if I may say. You you may say that. So that that's a lot of information that you had to read yeah. and, and absorb. What did you learn about Monet in three hours? Well, you know, I learned and I've learned through this whole exhibit just how deep his exploration went with some kind of urgency to really try to capture light in landscapes, natural landscapes on the water right in the moment. Always trying to capture that, of course, which we learn in the exhibit, but never feeling like he really got there. Mm. So he's trying to capture such ephemeral things. I yes. mean, light can change in seconds, and he's trying to cast it for eternity in a way. Yeah, and I love the way that the curators designed the exhibit so that you had many different times of day, shades of light on the very same object or piece of landscape, sometimes zoomed in a little bit, sometimes zoomed out, really took you into the world of Claude Monet. Why does it make sense for a classical music host? Now, you have a beautiful voice, Monica Fisher, don't get me wrong. Why does it make sense for a classical music host to be the voice of a visual art exhibition? Well, in Paris at this time, over 100 years ago, artists were intrinsically linked, whether they were writers, whether they were composers, whether they were visual artists, and they would all meet up together at these Parisian salons. Debussy was a rich part of that, Ravel and others. So you really can't have one without the other in terms of how all the artists were inspiring each other Mm. and inspired by the same things at this time. This is why classical music plays over speakers in the exhibition at the Denver Art Museum, a a playlist curated by CPR Classical. Yeah, this was another part of the collaboration with the Denver Art Museum is we worked to put together this CD called Music in Monet's Time. And after Christoph, the head curator, heard it, this is the story I got, he decided, let's play this in the galleries as people are going through and seeing Monet's artwork. Christoph is Christoph Heinrich. I'm so curious. Did you get paid to be the voice no. of the Monet? No, no, okay. no, no. It's part of our service to the community, Ryan. <laughs> Monica, thanks so much. People hearing you in a completely new dimension. Thank you. Monica Fisher from CPR Classical. She is the voice of the Monet Show at the Denver Art Museum. It's basically sold out. I mean, they're releasing like a few tickets here and there, but it's hard to get in now. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. The show is at Colorado Matters. And we're Colorado Public Radio on Facebook. Nice to spend time with you. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News.